This is a Wild Hair Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Gas Radio Show with me, your host, Sheldon Snow, featuring classic radio programs from the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s, and 60s as well, and oh yeah, every now and then, one from the 70s. So don't think about yesterday or fret about tomorrow. Just kick back and enjoy the Classic Gas Radio Show. Coming up first, it's the Aldrich Family, which was a popular radio teenage situation comedy that ran from July 2nd, 1939 until April 19th, 1953. It was also in films, television, as well as comic books, but Henry Aldrich and the Aldrich Family actually started out as a creation of playwright Clifford Goldsmith and uh, for his Broadway play, What a Life, that ran for 538 performances. Now, Rudy Valley saw the play, and he asked Goldsmith to adapt it into some sketches for his radio program. Now, that was followed in 1938 by a, 20, uh, by a 39-week run of sketch comedy series on the Kate Smith Hour. Now, after finding an audience with Smith's listeners, the Aldrich family was launched in its own series as a summer replacement program for Jack Benny in 1939. It stayed there until October 1st, 1939, and then it got its own slot and on regular slot. When the show came out, it was a top 10 ratings hit within just two years. Now, Goldsmith ended up being the highest paid writer in radio at the time, earning $3,000 a week. Now, this one from October 17, 1939. It's the Aldrich family on the Classic Gas Radio Show. Family, written by Clifford Goldsmith, featuring the Broadway stars Ezra Stone and this week's special guest, Betty Field. Brought to you by Jell-O Puddings, those delicious new desserts all America's talking about. 
Aldrich family arrived on Broadway this week in the hilarious, successful Paramount picture, What a Life. It's truly a four-bell movie, and we urge you all to see it. Tonight, we are pleased to present one of the stars of the motion picture, Miss Betty Field, who will play Barbara Pearson, Henry's sweetheart. As usual, the part of Henry Aldrich is played by Ezra Stone. The scene opens in Barbara's home. It is early evening. Uh, no, he hasn't, Barbara. First time this week he hasn't been here. Father, could you come here a minute? Where are you? I'm here in the front hall. Well, well, what is it this time, Barbara? Now listen, Father. I don't want Grandmother to hear me. Why don't you want me to? Oh, no reason. Father. Yes? When Henry comes, would you do something for me? Well, what is it? I know it's awful, but I've got it all planned. I found out today Henry is seeing an awful lot of Constance Marshall. Who told you? Constance herself did. I see. But Father, I've even seen them together. Charles, where's that box of candy we had around here last night? I haven't any idea. Father, when Henry does come, would you mind stepping into the room just once or twice and saying George Bigelow wants to speak to me on the telephone? Well, You I... will, Father, won't you? I'm just a bit surprised, Barbara. But Father, it wouldn't be so terrible, would it? Don't you think I'm human? Barbara, I still think it'd be much better if you got your grandmother mixed up in this. But, Daddy, Grandmother wouldn't approve of it. You know she wouldn't. And exactly what makes you think I do? It's for Henry's own good, Father. Constance Marshall is so silly. Barbara, young ladies don't go about deliberately making young men jealous. Oh, but they do. I beg to differ with you. Well, sir, I'd give my eye teeth for a piece of that candy. Still had my eye teeth. Charles, somebody's at the front door. Please say yes, Father. Well, I'll think it over. That's practically yes. Tell Henry I'll be right down. Well, how do you do, young man? Oh, how, how do you do, Mr. Pearson? How, how are you this evening? Splendid. And uh, uh, how is Mrs. Sanderson? She's splendid. No, she's not either. My digestion's terrible. Is that you in there, Mrs. Sanderson? Charles, tell Barbara Henry's here. I've been asking all evening where Henry is. Has she? No, I I had to stop for a second and see somebody on the way over, Barbara. Oh. Don't you want to put your hat in that package down? I'll put my hat down, but I think I'll keep the package. <laughs> don't you trust us, Henry? Oh, I don't mind holding it. It only weighs two pounds. What's in it? Oh, just a little something. Well, <clears throat> Mr. Pearson, how, how do you find business? Very good, Henry. You know, my father was saying... Uh, will you excuse me just a moment, Henry? That's all right. Henry, I went over to my doctor's today. Is that right? And I can't eat one blessed thing. Is that right? And I can't remember when I went to sleep last. Hello, Henry. Oh, hello. <laughs> well. Oh, here. Here, here. Here's a package for you. Uh, be careful when you take it. It weighs two pounds. <gasps> you shouldn't have done this, Henry. Well, I'm, aren't you going to open it? All right. Um... Who did you drop in to see on your way over, Henry? Nobody in particular. It wasn't Constance Marshall, was it? Oh, all she wanted me to do was drop in and say hello. Oh. She's a nice girl. Uh, Barbara? Yes, Father? You're wanted on the telephone. Who is it? It sounded like George Bigelow. George Bigelow? Again? Oh. Will you excuse me, Henry? Sure. You mean you're going without opening it? I'll be right back. Uh. Certainly strange. I didn't hear that phone ring. Mrs. Sanderson, did 
Did Mr. Pearson say George Bigelow? He did. George Bigelow. Tell me, what do you honestly think of George? I'll tell you the truth, I don't think of him at all. Oh. What do you think of him? Oh, you can't get me to say anything against him. Very honorable of you. You know, I said to Barbara only the other day, young lady, I said, I hope you appreciate what kind of a young man Henry Aldrich really is. Is that right? Oh, my, yes. And what did she say? Uh, I forget now. Oh. Well, I certainly hope George doesn't call again. George fine? He's very fine. Glad to hear that. Uh, certainly wish I could say as much about myself. Uh, don't you think you'd feel better if you went up to bed, Grandmother? When are you going to open that candy? I'm opening it. Candy, Grandmother? Hmm. Well, just two. Candy, Henry? Oh, <laughs> I didn't even know you were there. Thank you. Mm. Very good. Even if they do have enough. Shall we uh, step out onto the front porch, Barbara? No. Don't go out there and catch pneumonia, right? To prime your lives. Well, couldn't Barbara put on a coat, maybe? Oh, Barbara? Yes, Father? Telephone. I think it's George Bigelow again. My goodness. I guess he just thinks I don't have anything else to do. Excuse me, Henry. Uh-huh. I must be getting deaf. Henry, do you hear any phone ring? No, ma'am. Who are you? With I? Hmm. Uh-huh. Whatever it is. Don't you do something about it? Well, what is there I can do? Oh, it's worth having. It's worth having, ain't it? You mean... You mean I ought to pound the daylights out of George? Well, he's out of him or out of Barbara. How? Well, then you can lay your hands on. That reminds me. Hand me that candy. Well, gee, if Barbara likes George, I don't see how socking him is going to help any. It'll certainly make you feel better, won't it? Even if he's older than I am? Listen, young man. I used to be as pretty as any of them in my day, and I know all the tricks of the trade. Yeah, did you used to fight? When the occasion demanded it, yes. Hey, are these all caramels? No, ma'am. Now, let me tell you something. If you want to make her sit up and take notice, only way to do is to make her jealous. You mean, when she comes into the room, I don't pay any mm -hmm. attention to her. I just sit and talk to you. Well, is that the way they do it in the movies? You mean I should make her think I like somebody else? No, I'm telling you. Not as a grandmother. But as one soldier to another. Get busy and get busy quick. Yes, ma'am. Here. Want to eat the half of this one? It's got nuts in it. My goodness. George Bigelow, he wants to give me his class pin. Can you imagine such a thing? Well, <clears throat> I'm late as it is. Where are you going? No place. I I just told Connie when I dropped in I'd be right back. Oh. Um, I'm sorry I didn't tell George he could come over. No, why don't you call him back? Well, of course. Maybe I will. <laughs> if his phone ain't wore out. Henry, what's that you're putting on the lapel of your coat? Uh, oh, nothing. <laughs> Just a pen of Connie she asked me to wear. Where'd she get it? Uh, her mother had it first. It's an old family heirloom. Let me see what it says. Vote the temp Democratic ticket. Yeah, yeah, the, the whole family comes from a long line of Democrats. Oh. I'm sorry you have to go, Henry. Well, um, maybe I can stay. I'm telling you, Henry Aldrich, you're making the mistake of your life. But, uh... Well... But Grandmother, I don't think we should force him to go. Henry? Well, I, I, I guess I have to go, Barbara. Hmm. Goodbye. Oh, goodbye. I, um... I don't suppose we'll see very much of you from now on, will we? Why not? Oh, 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 yeah. I guess as time goes on, you won't. Hmm. Well... Uh, Barbara, you're wanted on the telephone. Who is it? You better go to George. It's uh, Constance Marshall. She's over at somebody's house and wants you to come over. Is that right? 
Oh. I'll answer it in just a minute. Who is this Constance Marshall? Constance Marshall is nothing but an NTS. What's an NTS? NTS is necktie straightener. Every boy she meets, she has to straighten right away. Charles, who is Constance Marshall? Constance Marshall's father is one of the most active Republicans in this state. <gasps> is that right? I think I'll be going. I know what you're going to do, Henry Aldrich. You're not going to Connie's house at all. But I am. Oh, no, you aren't. You're really going to some other girl's house. I hope whoever she is, you have an awful time there. But listen. No, I won't. I hate you, Henry Aldrich. Young man, get out of this house. But, Mr. Sanderson... And don't you ever darken this doorway again. With chocolates filled with nuts and raisins. Get out! Yes, ma'am. Constance. Where are you going? No place, just to the grocery store. Henry Aldridge, look at your necktie. Mm, I know it's crooked. I, I wear my tie like that purposely. Please let Constance help you. Not so tight. Do you want to strangle me? How do you do, Henry Aldridge? Oh, how do you do, Mrs. Sanderson? How do you do, Mrs. Sanderson? How do you do, young lady? Where are you going? I'm going to the doctor's. Would you like to have me walk along partway with you? Oh, do you have to go now, well, Henry? Gee, I'm late as it is. Tell you what I wish you'd do, Henry. Stay right where you are. Here? Yes, sir. Barbara'll be along just a minute or so. Wish you'd tell her where I've gone. But my mother's waiting for the groceries. Do you want Barbara to walk the streets of this town looking for me? Now, you stay right here, as I tell you to. And you, young lady, you stay here and see does. Oh, yes, Mrs. Sanders. And you tell her if I'm out at the doctor's, I'll be right across the street from there getting a bag of candy. Henry Aldridge, look at your head. Listen, Constance. You know, you could be one of the cutest boys I've ever known. Cute? I'm cute? Hmm. <laughs> How do you think I'm cute? Oh. oh, Henry, you've got the cutest lock of hair right up there. What's the matter with it? <laughs> Every time I push it down, it goes right up. Oh, <laughs> look at it. Down, up, down, up. <laughs> How do you do, Henry? Oh. Where did you come from, Barbara? No place. Your grandmother wanted me to tell you she's gone to the doctor's. I know where she is. Oh, well, what did she want us to wait here and tell you for? I should like to add, Henry Aldrich, that you are certainly making a spectacle of yourself out here in the street. I am? No self-respecting person would have his hair combed by a girl right out in public. Listen, Barbara, I'll have you know I'll have my hair combed wherever I want. And what George Bigelow said about you is absolutely true. What did he say about me? Never mind. He said you. He said... I hope sometime he tells you what he said. Well, what do you know about that? Gee whiz, anybody think I'd struck her? Henry, if I were you, I'd never speak to her again. Well, I hope you don't think I'm going to speak to her again. Henry, would you like to come over to my house tonight? Gee whiz, I'd be glad to. <laughs> I'd be glad to. I think it would do me good. Before Henry Aldrich comes back, I want to say that if you happen to have an active, growing boy in your family, I know one thing. I know that you're kept plenty busy feeding that boy because youngsters that age are always hungry, always on the lookout for something good to eat. Well, now, here's a dessert that every boy and girl, too, will say is a real smoothie. The new Jell-O Butterscotch Pudding. It has a swell, tempting color like gold-colored taffy. 
It's smooth and luscious, and it just can't be beat for real flavor. As rich and delicious as old-fashioned butterscotch candy. Jell-O butterscotch puddings bring you real downright homemade goodness. And best of all, it's quick and easy to make. It takes you only a few minutes, there's no fuss or trouble, you just can't go wrong. Then try Jell-O chocolate pudding, with that wonderful real chocolate goodness, smooth and satisfying. And Jell-O vanilla pudding, cream-colored and tempting, with nuts or fruits folded in to make it even more delicious. All three new Jell-O puddings have that homemade richness you love, so try them all. Ask your grocer tomorrow for Jell-O butterscotch, chocolate, and vanilla pudding. Back at the Aldrich home, we find the whole family seated at the breakfast table. Uh, everyone, that is, uh, except Henry. Henry! 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 Mary, do you know whether Henry's up yet? He said he was getting up the first time you called. Father! What is it? Father, will you please tell Mary that if she sees Connie Marshall go by to flag her? Aren't you all dressed yet, Henry? Practically, Mother. My goodness, all Henry can think about is Constance Marshall. How is it he never sees Barbara Pearson anymore? Her grandmother won't let him near the house. What's the trouble? I don't know, except she said something about his going too far over something. And did I tell you about the picture I found under Henry's pillow? Of whom? Barbara's grandmother? Of Connie Marshall. And down in the corner it said, Constance to others, but constantly to Henry. Doesn't that make you positively ill, Mother? Please pass the salt. This whole business is something I shall never understand. Oh, forget it. By next week, you'll be over the whole thing. Mother! Yes, Henry? Have you any idea where my trousers might be? I thought you were all dressed. I am, Father. All but my trousers. They seem to be missing. Where did you wear them last? I think it was when I went to the movies. Don't tell me you left your trousers at the movies. Wear your brown trousers, dear. My brown trousers? But Mother Connie doesn't like those. She even tells him what clothes to wear. The next thing you know, they'll be announcing their engagement. It may be of interest for you to know that this is not one bit funny. But, Mother, I think it would be all right with Constance. How do you know? I heard her tell Henry only the other day that she believes in long engagements. Well, this would have to be a good long one because Henry still has a year and a half of high school and... Six years of college before he even begins to practice law. She may even talk him out of becoming a lawyer. Mary, you certainly are cheerful this morning. Mother, look out through the window. Look at what I see. Constance Marshall. Constance Marshall? She even comes here for breakfast now. Well, they selected a very excellent name for that child. <laughs> Hello, Mary. Hello. I wondered whether you'd like to have me walk to school with you. Come on in, Constance. I guess you know my father, don't you? <laughs> How do you do? How do you do? My goodness, Mr. Aldridge, you look like Henry. I? Only, of course, an awful lot older. <clears throat> uh, yes. Shall we start now, Constance? Has Henry left yet? Not yet. Where is he? We have no idea where he is. You mean, Mr. Aldridge, Henry has left home? Apparently, he has. Constance, Henry's upstairs. We only think he's upstairs. No one in the family has seen him. We have simply heard sounds that might have come from Henry. Henry! Henry! You see? What did I tell you? Is somebody calling me? There's somebody down here to see you. Who is it, Mother? Oh, somebody. 
You mean to see me? Yes. Oh, I know who it is. It's Stinky Cameron. Hi, Stinky. Henry. I'll be down just as soon as I find my pants. Henry, it's not Stinky. And even if it were, I don't think you should call him that. Oh, he doesn't mind. No, you're Stinky. Henry. Father Tom's come on up and help me find my pants. Henry, you're disgracing the entire family. In fact, it might interest you to know that Constance is down here. Yeah? <laughs> So's General Grant. Hello, Henry. Well, gee whiz, where did you come from, Connie? Home. Well, why didn't anybody tell me? I'll be right down. Henry, have you got your trousers on? Oh, no, I'm glad you spoke about that. Excuse me. We better be starting, Constance. Oh, we've got loads of time, Mary. Not unless you want to be as late as Henry is. Goodbye, Mother. Goodbye, Father. Goodbye, Mary. Goodbye, Mr. Aldridge. <laughs> Goodbye. Charming young woman. Oh, my goodness, Sam. I hope he'll get over it. You must remember, however, that someday somebody is going to marry that young woman. Mm, but it certainly isn't going to be Henry. It would be just our luck to have it be Henry. Wait for me, Mary. Wait for me. They've left, Henry. They've left without me? Well, of course. Well, goodbye, everybody. Come back here and eat your breakfast. But, Mother, do you want me to run right on top of a hearty meal? I want you to come back to this table. Where did you find your trousers? That's the strangest part of it. I found them on a chair in my room. Mm, on a chair? Yeah. Uh, Henry, where did you meet this Constance? I was a fine yuck to her. Henry, don't you think you should swallow your food before you talk? Yes, Mother. I'll answer you in just a minute, Father. Here, I was assigned next to her. In what way? My seat. My seat in assembly. Oh, I see. Why were you asking? I was just wondering, what does her father do? He's an exterminator. He's a what? Just a minute. He's an exterminator. An exterminator? No matter what you have, even if it's rats, you call him and he'll get rid of them. Henry. That's right, Mother. He's, he, he'll get rid of any kind of pest there is. He has never shown any disfavor toward his daughter? Don't you like Constance? Henry, in the past, your father and I have always permitted you to know anyone you wanted to. But somehow we don't care for this Connie. Why not, Mother? Well, putting it bluntly, you're much too nice for her. <laughs> Mother, don't be absurd. Well, until she came along, I didn't care how I looked. Now look at me. Remember that bunch of hair that, that always used to stand up? Now I keep it calmed down. And to tell you the truth, I miss that lock of hair. I miss it very much. You don't think I look improved? Oh, Henry, dear, when are you coming to your senses? In what way, Mother? Well, for one week now, you haven't touched your homework. You can't eat your meals. Well, you... I, I don't need food. Whatever became of Barbara Pearson? Barbara Pearson. Of course. She w Well, she was all right when I was young, Mother. You uh, grew old seven days ago? I certainly changed since then. In what way, aside from putting Vaseline on your hair? In a lot of ways, Father. Well, just remember, son, we wouldn't have you lose your head for anything. Is that clear? Yes, Father. Now run on to school. Yes, sir. Only, only you've got the wrong idea about Constance. I'm quite sure one of us has. Goodbye. Goodbye. So long. Sam Aldrich, I'm worried sick. Oh, Alice, you're worrying about something that's absurd. Sam, I didn't want to say anything about it before... I, I usually don't read anything that belongs to Henry, but I picked up a note Constance wrote him, and Sam, she isn't his kind. Well, why didn't you tell me there was more to it? Well, what I want to know is what we should do. Give him some castor oil and send him to bed. Well, that's what I thought you'd say. I know what I am going to do. What? I'm going to handle this the way the psychologists say a parent should. Now, Alice, if I were you, I wouldn't start fooling around with psychology at a time like this. But it's common sense, Sam. 
If we forbid his seeing the girl, it's simply a challenge. So the thing for us to do is to tell him that he may see her just as much as he wants to. Which is what he's doing anyhow. But we should invite her to dinner, Sam. Invite her here to dinner? Well, of course. If he sees enough of her, he'll grow tired of her. You hope he will. I'm sure he will. And on next Saturday night, we're having her and some of his other friends here for dinner. Hiya, Connie. Henry. Henry, do you like my dress? Yeah, it's very pretty. I've got to see who's at the door. Oh, I let them in. It was George Bigelow and some other girl. Oh. Henry, let Connie straighten your tie. You always yank it so tight. The other night, I had to go to sleep with it on. Oh. Oh, how do you do, Mrs. Aldridge? How do you do, Constance? We're very glad you could come. How do you do? You'll find my family in the living room. Papa has to leave early. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. He's got to go on a big job for somebody. You don't say so. This is the third time he's been there. He just nicely gets them out, and they always come back. Mm. Sam, come along. Henry, wait and talk to Connie. Yeah, I've got to go and see my guests. Are they more important than poor little I? No, but I ought to go in and say hello to them. Henry, Henry, look at me. Oh, you've got the bluest eyes Connie has ever seen in her life. Yeah? Excuse me for interrupting. Oh. Got something in your eye, Henry? (laughs) Gee whiz, Mrs. Anderson. Hello, Henry. Henry, you didn't tell me Barbara was coming. No. Well, I understood this party was for me. I'm going in the other room and tell your mother what I think of it, Henry Aldrich. Henry, I know I shouldn't have come, even if your mother did say I should. But I'm glad to have you. I'm glad to have both of you. Well, I'm not staying. I just came to make sure she got here. Where's your mother? In the next room. I'll just slip in and say hello. See whether maybe there's a little candy around. Uh, well, I see Constance has been fixing your tie again. How can you tell? It looks so nice. Doesn't look like you. No? When I came in, she was just going to straighten your eyes for you, I guess. Wasn't she? Listen, Barbara, please. Henry, would you mind very much if I went home? Henry, aren't you going to come in and join your guests? Yes, Father, we're coming. George Bigelow says he hasn't even seen you. (gasps) George Bigelow? Henry, I can't go in there. Why not? Because I can't. Please let me go, Henry. But I want you to stay. Henry, I've got to tell you. Those telephone calls I had from George, they weren't from George at all. Well, who were they from? Nobody. I just did it to make you jealous. Was that your grandmother's idea? No. It was mine. Wasn't it ridiculous? Barbara, come in here. They got cakes with every kind of icing you can think of. No. Henry, your mother wants you. I'll be there. She wants you now, right away. But can't she wait a second? No. Now then, young lady... If you want Henry Aldridge, you will stay here where you can keep an eye on him. I'm not going to stay. You want to upset me even more than I already am? I can't help it. I'm going home. Barbara, wait. No. Well, you've got to come in, dear. It wouldn't be a party without you. Why not? For any number of reasons. But look at my eyes. They're a sight. Tears, my dear, only make you prettier. I know from experience. Do you really think so? Yet. I've cried. <laughs> I've been thinking about that party. 
<laughs> and you said I didn't understand psychology. Well, I didn't say that. I said you were taking a gamble. Mm, just think we won't have to worry about that awful Constance Marshall or the idea of Henry's ever giving up law or getting engaged before he leaves high school. Oh, yes, it's, it's usually work out for the best. Mm, just provided naturally. you give him a little assistance. By the way, have you heard Henry come in yet? Don't believe I have. Oh, my goodness, what time is it? It's, uh, by the clock on the bureau, it's ten minutes to two. Sam Aldrich, Henry has never stayed out this late before in his life. I thought you weren't going to worry anymore. Oh! Henry, is that you? Yes. Where have you been, Henry? No place. I just walked home with Barbara, and then I had to wait until her grandmother went to bed. Come in here and say goodnight to us. I want to thank you for the swell party. Barbara said she had a very nice time. Sit down here on the edge of the bed. Henry, you're sitting right on my ankle. I'm, I'm sorry, Father. I didn't know it was there. Where did you think it would be? Henry, move your head over toward the light from the door. What for? Oh, Henry, I could almost cry. Why? That old lock of hair. It's standing straight up again. Yeah. She lets me wear my necktie so I can breathe, too. Mother... Would you mind my asking right from the shoulder? What, dear? Well, would would you and Father be disappointed if if I didn't study six years to become a lawyer? Why not? Oh, no particular reason, Father. I was just asking. Henry Aldrich, you aren't thinking of getting married, are you? Oh, no, Mother, no. We think you should wait until you're at least through high school. Don't you? Well, Alice, you certainly understand psychology. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, once there was a husband who was very fussy about his desserts. He liked puddings, but only the kind of puddings that his wife made for him. Well, of course, it's a lot of work to make good puddings, so this man's wife decided to play a little trick on him. What happened? Well, the wife who wrote us about this is right here in person, Mrs. Florence C., who lives at 25 Hillside Avenue, Washington Heights, New York City. Uh, here's your letter, Mrs. C. Would you read us the rest of what you wrote, please? Certainly, Mr. Von Zell. I decided to try jello chocolate pudding. It only take it only took me a few minutes to whisk it up, and when supper time came, there it was. A big bowl full of rich, creamy, smooth chocolate pudding. Well, my husband came right back for the second helping. Said it was the most delicious pudding I had ever made. So then I told him about it. Told him that I had used the new jello chocolate pudding. He had to admit it surely was a success. Every bit as delicious as the old-fashioned kind. Well, thank you very much, Mr. C. And ladies, that is the way to make a hit with your husband, too. For the new Jell-O puddings have that real old-fashioned goodness. Creamy, smooth, full-flavored, and tempting. But they're far quicker and easier to make. There are three delicious Jell-O puddings to choose from. Rich chocolate, mellow butterscotch, and creamy, delicate vanilla. Yes, you like all three new Jell-O puddings. Real old-fashioned puddings made a new-fashioned way. So try them tomorrow. Barbara? Yes, Henry? Are, are you sure your grandmother's going to bed? Thank heavens, she has. Well, uh, do you mind my asking you something? What is it, Henry? What well, would, uh, would you like to go to a football game with me Saturday? Of course I would, Henry. If you go, Henry... I give you the money to get a seat for me. <laughs> well, Grandma's in again, but be sure to tune in again next week for further adventures of Henry Aldrich. 
The Aldrich Family, starring Ezra Stone, is written by Clifford Goldsmith. Tonight's special guest was Betty Field, star of the stage and screenplay, What a Life. And she'll be back with us again next week. Original music is composed and conducted by Jack Miller. Harry Von Zell speaking and wishing you good night for those delicious new desserts all America's talking about. Jell-O pudding. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Coming up next, it's the Burns and Allen Show. Now, George Burns and Gracie Allen met in 1922. They got married in 1926, and they worked together as a uh, successful comedy team on vaudeville. Burns played the straight man, and Allen played a silly, addle-headed woman. They also starred in a number of movies, including Lamb Chops in 1929 and the big broadcast in 1932. Their 30-minute radio show (laughs) debuted in September of 1934 as The Adventures of Gracie, and then the title changed to Burns and Allen Show in 1936. The series ran moving back and forth between NBC and CBS until May of 1950, when it got canceled. Now, after the cancellation, uh, it emerged again on television as a popular situation comedy, which ran from 1950 to 1958. This, from February 24, 1941, is the Burns and Allen Show on the Classic Gas Radio Show. From New York, the George Burns and Gracie Allen Show with Beatrice Fairfax for Hormel and Spam. Time for Burns and Allen. And when the kitchen clock warns, hurry up, mother, time for the youngsters to come running home, take it easy and solve the school lunch problem with Spam, S-P-A-M. Spam is that delicious meat originated and made only by Hormel. It's packed in a handy can, all ready to eat as soon as it's opened. No fuss, no bother. Just cut off slices of this taste-tempting meat, put between slices of buttered bread, and say to the hungry youngsters, have a Spamwich. The perfect combination of sweet, juicy pork shoulder and tender ham, Spam has an extra goodness and meaty flavor all its own. Youngsters go for Spam in a big way. Try Spam tomorrow. When you see the easy recipes on the label, you'll discover you can serve Spam cold or hot. It's America's popular mealtime aid. So ask your food dealer for S-P-A-M, Spam.
now we bring you George Burns, who's fit to be tied because Spam's meatheart, Gracie, hasn't arrived yet. Kyle, that's fine. We're on the air and no Gracie. Jimmy, have you seen her? Oh, sure, sure. I've seen them both. Both? Yeah, as a matter of fact, they've been together every night this week. Together? Together with whom? George, you know I'm the last one in the world to start any trouble. I know, I know, Jimmy. But I was at the Ritz Cocktail Lounge, yeah. and right at the next booth... Uh-huh. You know the place where they have those curtains? Yes. Well, look, George, for all I know, it may be platonic. <coughs> look, <laughs> Jimmy, who was Gracie with? Well, do me a favor, will you? Ask Artie Shaw. Uh, all right, I will. Artie. Artie Shaw. Uh, Senor Burns, he hasn't come in yet. Artie hasn't come in either? You smell a mice? <laughs> Wait a minute. Hey, Jimmy, it can't be that Artie Shore and Gracie are... Are they together? Well, George, I've, I've only been with you for four weeks. I know from nothing. I'm staying with you the rest of the season. Hmm. Well, I'll give that guy a piece of my mind when he gets here. Fire him. Get rid of him. I know a musician who can play rings around that Shaw. And besides, I'll work cheaper. <laughs> Senor Lee, you want to lead the band? Why not? What's Artie Shaw got that I haven't got? And don't answer that question. <laughs> How do you like that? Gracie and Shaw. Cocktail lounge. Boots with curtains. Both late for the show and we're on the air. I wonder where they can be now. Cab driver. Yes, miss? Once more around the park. Oh, isn't it thrilling, Artie? You and I alone in a cab. <gasps> Just think, we've been together for 34 weeks. And for 33 weeks, you never even looked at me and I never looked at you. And last week, you looked at me and I looked at you. And here we are looking at each other. Hello. Hello. Artie. Yes, Gracie. I'm holding your hand. I'm holding yours, too. Oh, I knew someone was holding it, but I didn't know it was you. Well, it's me. Artie. Yes, Gracie. Now that I'm holding your hand... You know what I'm thinking of? What? Oh, I hate to tell you. Come on, tell me. Well, promise you won't look at me when I say this. All right, I promise. They're moving the aquarium up to the Bronx. <laughs> you know, I'm worried about my musicians. The poor fish. <laughs> oh! Isn't the park beautiful? Look at those swans over there with those beautiful long necks. If I were a swan, I'd have a long neck, too. I love long necks. Drive her once more around the park. <laughs> you know, Gracie, this is wonderful, but we really must get back to the studio. Oh, there's one thing I want to know, Artie. What, Gracie? Artie, I've followed your career, and I know I'm not your first love, but there's one thing you've just got to tell me. What's that? Well... Now that you've held us both in your arms, which one do you like better, me or your clarinet? <laughs> Gracie, you'll have to give me a little time on that one. Artie, do you like home cooking? Oh, I love it. Oh, well, when I'm out working, you can be home cooking. <laughs> Look, Gracie, it's getting very late. Oh, and just think how happy we'll be growing old together, the three of us. The three of us? Yes, you and I and Frenesy. 
Gracie, we'd better get back to the studio before the broadcast is over, and we'd better not walk in at the same time. Well, I, I guess you're right. Driver, yes, once more around the park. Jimmy, try to understand this. The show is pretty near half over, and they're still not here. You said you saw Gracie in a booth at the Ritz. But I didn't say she was with Artie. But Artie was there, wasn't he? But I didn't say he was with Gracie. But you say that you peeked through the curtains? Yeah. And what do you think they were doing? What? Well, eating spamwiches. <clears throat> eating spamwiches? Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's that delicious pork shoulder with ham meat added. How could you think of spam at a time like this? I know from nothing. I'm staying with you the rest of the season. <laughs> Smoothies, will you, will you do me a favor and do your number right now? I'll find those people. I'll call the Rich Cocktail Bar. That's Senor Burns, if I were you, I'd fire that Shaw. Why don't you give him two weeks' notice starting last month? <laughs> I think I will. Some nerve, that Shaw. He's taking the wrong altitude. Altitude? Si, senor. Attitude. Altitude means high. At the cocktail bar, he's drinking milk? <laughs> well, I'll find him. Operator, get me the Ritz Carlton, please. Just a song at twilight Till we can hear it at close of the day Love will be found the sweetest song of all Just a song at Where was I? 
Well, I wasn't in the music hall. You are. Although I did walk down 57th Street. I was at Milgram. Uh, yeah, that's where I was. I was at Milgram. George, that's a beautiful shop. You must buy your clothes there. They've got the most beautiful dresses. You were, uh, <laughs> at Milgram's. Yes, their dresses are simply it's beautiful. It's now 7.30 and Milgram's closes at 6 o'clock. It does? Hmm. Oh, then I must have been locked in. That's where I was. I was locked in. You were locked in? Yes. Well, if you were locked in, how did you get out? Yeah, how did I get out? Yes. I must have gotten out. Oh, sure. Because I'm here. Mm. If I wasn't here, I'd be locked in. Mm. And I'm not locked in, so I must have gotten out. I must have gotten out, yes. I rang the burglar alarm. That's what I did. I rang the burglar alarm. You rang the burglar alarm? Yeah, and the burglar came down and left me out. The burglar alarm! <laughs> Burglar let you out, huh? You don't believe it, huh? No. Didn't sound good to me either. <laughs> Would you believe it if I said Virgo Goodman? No. Macy Bateman? Gracie, I want the truth. Oh. Well, as, as, as long as you're going to be stubborn about it, I was with a sick friend. <laughs> with a sick friend? Yeah, and if you don't believe this one, I've only got one more. What's the name of the sick friend? Well, I don't know. He was too sick to tell me. <laughs> he had pneumonia. Had pneumonia? Double pneumonia. Double pneumonia? Well, it wasn't exactly double pneumonia. It was a sort of a single pneumonia. Single pneumonia. More yeah. like a three-quarter three pneumonia. Three-quarter pneumonia. Had a cold. Yeah, had a cold. That's it wasn't pneumonia. exactly a cold. He sneezed. Sneezed, yeah. Just sneezed once. Sneezed once. Well, yeah. he sneezed just, just once. Just once he sneezed, yeah. Matter of fact, he was never even sick. Huh? The healthiest man in the world. He's strong as a bull. Strong as a bull? Died, you know. He died? Yeah, from double pneumonia. Well, it wasn't exactly oh, double pneumonia. Oh, quiet, quiet. Like I'm asking you for the last time, and I'm running out of patience. Well, that's good, because I'm running out of excuses. <laughs> well, what really happened was, I was waiting for the 6th Avenue elevator, and I knew that just I had to go to the broadcast, and then... You were waiting for the 6th Avenue yes, elevator? Yes, I knew I had to go to the broadcast. 6th Avenue elevator? Yes, yes. That's been down for two years. Well, that delayed me a little. <laughs> I happen to know where you are because somebody saw you. Hey, Jimmy. I know from nothing I'm staying with you the rest of the season. <laughs> Fine. Come here, Gracie. I want to see you alone. Alone? Yes, alone. Just you and me? Just you and me. Well, I know the cutest spot, the Ritz Cocktail Lounge. It's got a little... The Ritz little Cocktail Lounge, Jim. I And now Artie Shaw's orchestra, without Artie Shaw and without his clarinet, will play Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child. Wait a minute. Hey, stop the music. What was that? Hey, that, that clarinet. Oh, so you sneaked in, huh? Come here, Shaw. Yes, Mr. Burns. Now, you can stop with that yes, Mr. Burns stuff. Do you happen to know that we've been on the air for 20 minutes? Yeah, I heard it, George, and it was really a killer. You were never funnier in your life. Okay, fellas, here we go. Wait a minute. Wait a minute with that one, too. Why, Artie, sure, I'm ashamed of you. Well, the only thing that could make anyone this late to a broadcast would be a cyclone or a tornado, or else you met a very beautiful girl. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Quiet. Artie, where have you been? Well, I, I sat up with a sick friend. 
A sick friend. Artie, that won't work. And the one about Milgram is dead, too. Hmm. Artie, it, it might surprise you to know that this program can go on without you. And it's possible for somebody in this great big city to take your place, you know. Uh, muchas gracias, Senor Burns. All right, boys. A one, a two. And Shaw, turn the pages. Uh, yes. <laughs> Senor Lee and his orchestra and his guitar oh, quiet, playing. quiet, quiet, quiet. <laughs> Artie, don't think you're getting away with anything. I happen to know that you and Gracie were at the Ritz Cocktail Lounge. Look, George, that's ridiculous. Oh, yeah? Hey, Jimmy. I know from nothing I'm staying with you the rest of the season. <laughs> well, Artie, this is your last chance. Were you and Gracie at the Ritz Cocktail Lounge? Oh, the Ritz Cocktail Lounge. I thought you said Hammock or Slimmer. <laughs> Hammock or Slimmer? <laughs> Yeah, Artie, that's that new bar next to that other cafe, Abercrombie and Fitch. <laughs> oh, George, just Abercrombie now. Just Abercrombie now? Yeah, they're moving the Fitch up to the Bronx. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, 
Artie, what really went on behind those little curtains? Hello. Hello. Oh, stop it. Hello, stop it. Artie, what went on? Well, look, uh, Gracie, Gracie read me one of her brother Willie's letters. Didn't you, Gracie? I did? Oh, the letter. Oh, my brother's letter, Willie's letter. Oh, you see, I get so many letters, I didn't know which brother you meant. He's the one in the army, you know. I know, I know, I know. He's my brother, you know. I know that guy. He's at Fort Dix, New Jersey. No, Fort Myers, Florida. Fort Myers, Florida? Yeah. He was transferred again. Well, it wasn't exactly transferred. <clears throat> what happened was he was standing in ranks, <clears throat> and the captain hollered forward march, and, well, he had his pants on backwards, and so ended he ended up, up in Florida. Florida yes. Sure. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's Willie, all right. He's my brother, you know. I know that. I know he's your brother. And I don't believe the whole story. Well, George, that's the best I can do unless you want me to go back to the one about Milgram. Gracie, I've heard your story, and Artie, I've heard your story. But, Jimmy, I haven't heard your story. Well. Yes. <clears throat> Once upon a time, there was a girl named Susie. Susie? What's that got to do with this? Oh, this is even better than the Milgram story. Oh. Anyway, Susie, who was a very smart girl, suddenly remembered one afternoon that she hadn't planned dinner. And the clock on the wall said... Ha, ha, ha. It's five o'clock. What are you going to have for dinner, dearie? <laughs> but Susie only laughed and said, whenever the occasion calls for delicious meat, serve Spam. Friends... You will be pleasantly surprised when you discover how Spam baked for dinner is a real taste tempter that satisfies the family completely. That's because Spam, S-P-A-M, is a perfect blend of sweet, juicy pork shoulder meat and tender ham, seasoned in a better way, cooked to a delicious extra goodness. Plan a meal around baked Spam. It's so easy. Just open a can of Spam, place the meat in a shallow baking dish, and bake according to the recipe on the label. In a jiffy, you'll take to the table a main course so distinctive in meaty flavor, so filled with lip-smacking satisfaction that the family will say, Spam is really elegant eating. Give the folks baked Spam tomorrow. The easiest to get, best to eat dinner you've had in a long, long time. But start right and get the real thing. Be sure to ask your food dealer for S-P-A-M, Spam. And then you'll be happy like Susie in the story who found... Susie winked her eye, and Sam passed her by, but they spent the dinner was the way she got her guy. Oh, Judge, stop worrying about Artie Shaw and me. As a matter of fact, he treats me like a dog. He treats you like a dog? Yes. He holds me on his lap and he pets me. <laughs> Will you stop? Everybody is beginning to think that your head is full of silly romances. Ah, well, don't believe it, Judge. There's nothing in it. You're telling me. <laughs> oh, somebody, uh, come in. Good evening. I'm Beatrice Fairfax. Beatrice Fairfax? She <laughs> writes the, uh, the advice to the love loan? That's right. Well, that's wonderful. Are you, Miss Fairfax? Did you get my letter? Well, that's why I'm here, Gracie. You you wrote Miss Fairfax a letter? Oh, what a letter. Hello. Hello. <laughs> so, uh, Miss Fairfax, that's why you're here, huh? Uh, yes, Mr. Burns. I've uh, been answering letters over a period of years. Some have been almost unbelievable. Never have I received a letter quite as confusing as this one. Oh, oh thanks. And it's original, too. <laughs> Well, Miss Fairfax, do you mind reading the letter? I'll be glad to. 
Dear Miss Fairfax, I have in front of me a long list of names of men who are itching to marry me, but I can't marry them all at once, and I don't know which one to scratch off. Well, that's a nice way to start a letter. <clears throat> letter continued. I'm in love, I think. I'd hate to feel the way I do, and then have it turn out to be the flu. <laughs> Signed, Gracie Anonymous Allen. Gracie Anonymous Allen. Gracie, what's happened to you? Well, I don't know, George, but ever since I've been in New York, I'm beside myself. Hmm. All day long, I'm beside myself. I go in the phone booth and I'm beside myself. Pretty crowded in a phone booth beside yourself. Well, that's fine. Miss Fairfax, have you ever been beside oh, yourself? Oh, quiet, quiet. <clears throat> I think Miss Allen's been bitten by the love bug. Oh, no, no. He only holds my hand and bites the clarinet. Wow. Wow. Senorita Fairfax, uh, I have a sweetheart. You give advice to the love worn. <laughs> Love one? It's lovelorn. Worn means something very old, tired, ready to be thrown away. Oh, you know Dolores. Miss <laughs> <laughs> Fairfax, that gives you an idea of what I have to put up with. Oh, yes, Judge. Doesn't he say silly things? Yeah, and you're all right. You're fine. <laughs> Well, you see, love is a strange thing that brings people together and then suddenly knocks them off their feet. Oh, like the subway, huh? Yeah, just like the subway. That's what she means. You know, Miss Fairfax, your work must be so interesting. I'm surprised you don't take it up. <laughs> yes, yeah, she'll start any minute. Well, as a matter of fact, it is fascinating. Of course, my correspondence is tremendous. Well, a little exercise will take that off. Nice sister Betsy has tremendous correspondence, but she likes potatoes, you She now. doesn't mean that. What I mean, Miss Allen, is that I get up every morning at 6 a.m. and start pounding my typewriter. Oh, well, I know just how you feel. You know, I'm in a nasty mood myself early in the morning. As a matter of fact, I do a little writing, too. I just finished an article for Liberty, and it'll be on the newsstands tomorrow. It's called How to Get Rich Quick. And it's great for people who have only a half an hour for lunch. You see, Miss Fairfax, uh, nothing phases that great brain. No, me either. Yes. There, there is a subject you can give me advice on. I always wanted to get rich. Oh, well, there's really nothing to it. Not take Jimmy Wallington or take Artie Shaw. Now, Artie's already taken. You better take Jimmy Wallington. Jimmy Wallington? Yes, uh, Jimmy Wallington. He's that tall fellow who sells Spam in our program. Oh, and uh, by the way, Spam is pork shoulder with ham meat added. And you must try it. It's simply delicious. Is Jimmy Wallington a millionaire? No, but he's got a mustache. She means, she means, has he got millions? Oh, uh, no, only one mustache. Only one mustache, yes. that's what I meant, yes. But isn't it cute? Oh, Jimmy, uh, turn around. How do you do, Miss Fairfax? Say, it is cute. <laughs> yes, it's a little dull. Well, I've got to run along now. Oh, no, wait, Miss Fairfax. Now I want you to meet something that is really something. But before you meet him, you must promise me one thing, that you won't talk for five minutes, that you'll just stand there and look at him. Artie, come here. There he is. Hello. Hello. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now, Artie, stand up straight. Now, smile for Miss Fairfax. <laughs> Now, Artie, turn sideways so she can see your profile. Now, Miss Fairfax, feel his muscle. Oh, now, wait a minute. <laughs> now, now, go on, feel his 
muscle, Miss Fairfax. <laughs> now, Artie, throw your head back. <laughs> Pretty. Oh. <laughs> Lord Gracie, will you stop? Well, I've had a wonderful evening, and I've just got to run along. Is there a drugstore downstairs? Yes, right. Downstairs. <laughs> you, uh, you got us in a fine mess with the great columnist. She's in every newspaper. She's spread all over the country. Why doesn't she wear a girdle, Mr. Sebastian? Quiet. Hey, wait a second, George. You can't talk that way to Gracie. Yeah, well, that goes for you, too. And you can't talk that way to Artie. That's right. I'm going. No, wait for me, baby. Goodbye, George. Goodbye, George. Wait a minute. Where are you two going? Uh, once more around the park. Once more around the family a favor and remind mother to get a can or two of Spam when she shops tomorrow. This delicious meat packed in a handy can is grand to eat, easy to serve, cold or hot. Originated by Hormel, Spam has become the most popular meat item brought out in a generation. You millions who use it regularly know how delicious Spam is, how it stands alone in taste, quality and flavor. If you haven't yet tried Spam, you're really missing something extra good. Get a can from your food dealer. Try the easy recipes on the label. Tomorrow, ask for Spam. Thanks, Jimmy, and good night, everybody. And good night. Gracie, I thought you left with Artie. Well, I came back to get some cab fare. Hello. Hello. Good night, all. Same station for another Burns and Allen show with Artie Shaw, his orchestra, and the smoothies. This is Jimmy Wallington reminding you to remember that cold or hot, spam hits the spot. up next is probably the most famous and influential uh, police procedural dramas in media history. The show's cultural impact is such that after seven decades, elements of, uh, of the show are still familiar to those of us who have never even heard the program. It ran from 2nd of June, 1949 until July 26, 1957. This from October 6, 1949 is Dragnet on the Classic Gas Radio Show. 
ladies and gentlemen. The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Fatima Cigarettes, best of long cigarettes, brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to homicide detail. A vicious killer has taken the life of a 62-year-old woman. Suspicion points in only one direction. The murderer was heartless, cold-blooded. Your job, get him. If you want a long cigarette, smoke the best of long cigarettes. Smoke Fatima. It's the long cigarette that contains an essential ingredient of all the very popular cigarettes, Turkish tobacco. That's why you see the turkey symbols on the attractive golden yellow Fatima package. That's why Fatima has a much different, much better flavor and aroma than any other long cigarette. That's why Fatima doubles and redoubles its smokers. Yes, if you want a long cigarette, smoke the best of long cigarettes. Smoke Fatima. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Saturday, November 5th. It was foggy in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of homicide. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. It was 3.35 p.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide. Long distance. This is Friday in Homicide. I'd like to place a call to Mr. Frank Renard in Murphy, Idaho. The number is 761. Frank Renard, Murphy, Idaho, 761. Yeah, that's right. The call's been cleared with the business office. All right. Uh, Do you want me to call you back, Sergeant? No, I'll hang on. Okay, thanks. 
Frank Renard, please. Los Angeles calling. Who do you want? Mr. Frank Renard, please. Los Angeles calling. I'm Frank Renard. Go ahead, please. All right, Sergeant, go ahead. Hello. Hello. Uh, hello, Frank Renard. Yeah, who's this? This is Sergeant Friday, Los Angeles Police Department. I've got an urgent message for you. For me? Well, what's the matter? Your wife, Dolores, asked me to call you. Something's happened to your mother. What do you mean? What's happened? Well, I better let your wife tell you. She wants you back in Los Angeles right away. Look, what's this all about? I can't leave my job now. You better come. Your mother's been murdered. Talk to the skipper, Joe. He's on his way in. That's good. Did you call my husband? Did you? He's flying down from Idaho tonight. Be here in the morning. You tell him about me? The trouble I'm in? I told him his mother was murdered. That's all I told him, Mrs. Renard. What am I going to say to Frank? He always sided in with his mother. He'll never believe me. What can I tell him? Jury can give you more trouble than your husband can. What you going to tell them? Are you stupid or something? How many times do I have to say it? I didn't kill her. I didn't kill her. It's a small room, Mrs. Renard. We can hear you. Sit down, please. I won't sit down. You're not pinning this on me because I didn't do it. Anybody could have killed the old hag, but I didn't. Will you sit down, please? I don't have to take this. I'm no tramp. Keeping me in here asking me questions. I told you all I know. Look, you're in a bad spot. I hope you realize that. I didn't kill her. Ms. Renard, how long have you and your mother-in-law been living together in the house on Chavez Road? Since Frank took the job up in Idaho. About six months. He said it'd be better for me while he was away living with her. Your neighbors told us you didn't get along very well with your mother-in-law. That's right, I didn't. She hated me, I hated her. You used to fight with her, is that right? You hit her. Only a couple of times. She called me dirty names. I hit her. She pulled me by the hair. I hated her like everything. I didn't kill her. Once more, Ms. Renard, would you mind telling us how you spent your time since early this morning, where you went, what you did, everything? I told you already everything. You tell us again, please. I got up about quarter to nine. I had a cup of coffee and then I got dressed. The old lady was on the back porch doing the washing. What did your mother-in-law do for a living? I told you. She took in washing. After I got dressed, I left the house. About ten minutes after nine, I went downtown to the dentist. He filled a tooth for me. This one here, you can ask him. What time did you leave the dentist's office? About quarter after ten. Maybe twenty after. You can ask him. What'd you do after that? I walked around window shopping. Did you buy anything? Talk to anybody? I told you no. What time did you get home? Half past twelve. I went in the bedroom. The old lady was on the floor. Blood all over. I felt her heart. It wasn't beating. Is that when you got the blood on your dress? Yeah. Now that's all I'm going to say. Three times I told you the same story already. And you still can't account for your time between 10.20 this morning and the time you found the body and called the police at 12.30. I told you. I left the dentist. I went window shopping. Then I walked home. And in that time you didn't talk to anyone and no one saw you. Lots of people saw me. People on the street downtown. I'm no tramp. I don't talk to everybody. None of your neighbors saw you come home, Miss Renard? Of course they didn't see me. I cut across the back lot up from San Jose Avenue. I came in the back way. The lady who lives next door to you. She says she was in the backyard about noontime. She stayed there till after 1 o'clock. She didn't see you come in the back way. Then she's a liar. She's a dirty liar. You and your husband took out an insurance policy on your mother-in-law last year. Is that right, Ms. Renard? Sure it is. What of it? $5,000? Yeah, so what? You know a man by the name of George Martino? No. You better tell the truth, Ms. Renard. All 
right, so I do. He's a friend of mine. You've been running around with him since your husband's been away. None of your business. I do what I want. Your mother-in-law found out about Martino. That's what you fought about most of the time. Oh, she was crazy. He's a friend of mine, that's all. Are you telling the truth, Ms. Renard? Martino's a boyfriend of mine. I told you, that's all. Your mother-in-law found out you were running around with him. She warned you if you didn't shake Martino, she'd write your husband. You said you'd kill her if she did. That's a lie. That's what your mother-in-law told one of the neighbor ladies. And I said it just to scare her. One night I was drinking. We had a fight. She was yapping at me all night. I said it just to scare her. But she wrote the letter anyway. And that's what she said. But I didn't kill her. You had the time, the motive, and the opportunity. It wasn't me. I didn't kill her. Interrogation room, Friday. This is Brennan, Joe. Yeah, Bill. Where are you? Santa Monica. Picked up George Martino. Ben and I drove Mrs. Renard to Lincoln Heights Jail, fifth floor, and had her booked on suspicion of 187 PC. When we checked back in at the office, Brennan and Wiseman, the other two men on the case with Ben and I, were questioning George Martino in the interrogation room. Ben and I stood by. Martino admitted only two things. He had been running around with Mrs. Renard since her husband left town, and he had heard Mrs. Renard express a desire to do away with her mother-in-law. After the questioning of Martino, Sergeant Brennan, Ben and I met with Chief Ed Baxter. It was 5.15 p.m. You got everything but the murder weapon, huh? That and Mrs. Renard's confession. She ought to come through, huh, Joe? I don't know. She's scared, but she's still got a smart mouth. What about Martino, Brennan? You think he had a hand in it? I don't think so. We spent most of the afternoon talking to him. He hasn't got the guts. We took a statement. And does he have an alibi? Solid. What was the cause of death? Strangulation, multiple fractures of the skull. All motives are with Mrs. Renard, Chief. Pretty clear-cut job. No evidence of robbery or burglary, I guess. A couple of dresser drawers in the bedroom were emptied on the floor and clothes tossed all around. Pretty obvious plan to make it look like burglary. Maybe. We found three $1 bills in plain sight. They were on the floor near the body. If a burglar went through this stuff, he wouldn't have missed that money. And uh, it shouldn't be too much trouble tying it up. Shouldn't be, Skipper. And Friday and Romero, you follow the case through. Oh, just a minute. Hello, Backstrand. Yeah? What? All right, I'll send him over. Lee Jones. Just finished checking the evidence at the crime lab. Yeah? He thinks Mrs. Renard's innocent. There they are, fellas. Facts don't lie. But she had every reason in the world to kill the old lady. In my book, she couldn't have killed her. All right, let's have it, Lee. How does the evidence add up? That's just it, Joe. It doesn't. Take a look. Right. Dress Mrs. Renard was wearing when she found the body. That's it. Blood smears near the hem. Two smears, that's all. Now, if she murdered her mother-in-law, there should be more blood on this dress. It shouldn't be smeared. How do you mean? First of all, the manner in which the old lady was killed. Head was battered in. Must have bled profusely. No question about that. All right, go ahead. Whoever murdered the old lady must have stains all over their clothes. Here's the important part. Because of the nature of the wound, it would have stained in drops, not smears. Well, how can you tell the difference? Maybe these are drop stains on her desk. They're not. I checked them with the microscope. Only the higher ribs of the cloth are stained. The smears, nothing else. But a drop forms its own definite drop pattern and permeates the cloth, soaks in. Mm-hmm. No signs of that on her dress. Not a one. Now, here's the silk scarf the old lady was strangled with. Yeah. Here's what I found in the knot tied in the scarf. A blonde hair, wavy. Old lady had dark hair. So does Miss Renard. So does her boyfriend. That's what I mean. This blonde hair is one of two things that didn't belong at that murder scene. What else you got? This hair. What is it, Lee? Small piece of plastic. A gun butt, I'd say. See here? Uh-huh. Crisscross surface and a little smooth area here. Yeah. The killer could have hit the old lady with the butt of a gun. And a piece of the stock could have chipped off like this, huh? Miss Renard doesn't own a gun. Neither did her mother-in-law. 
Where does that leave us? I don't know, Joe. There's the stuff. You can't disregard it. Maybe you can explain it. Yeah. How? Well, first prove this dress isn't the one Mrs. Renard was wearing this morning. Then find the dress she did wear. And we know she wore this when the dentist identified it, and so did two of the neighbors. That's what I mean. The dress is too clean, doesn't belong. Yeah. And this blonde hair, this piece of gun butt, they don't belong either. Well, and you think she's innocent? You're looking at the evidence. What do you think? <laughs> 6 p.m. Saturday, November 5th. Ben and I went back to the office and met with Brennan, Wiseman, and Ed Backstrand. The open and shut case against Mrs. Renard was up in the air, but we still weren't sure that she was innocent of the murder of her mother-in-law. Ben and I drove to the Lincoln Heights jail and interviewed the suspect again. She agreed to submit to a lie detector test. We drove back to the office, contacted Sergeant Berger, the department's polygraph man, and set up a special test for the following day. The next morning, we met with Berger and formulated a list of key questions. And then we picked up Mrs. Renard and brought her to the third floor of the old city jail building, the polygraph room. At 10.33 a.m., the test got underway. As usual, Sergeant Berger conducted the interview alone. Backstrand, Ben, and I waited outside. Well, um, how about Mrs. Renard's husband? Getting down yet? He's due in around noon, Skipper. Um, uh, got a smoke? I can study the chart a little more. The results are pretty well defined, though. How's it look? No reaction to the key questions. What's your opinion? I don't think she did it. You are listening to Dragnet, authentic stories of your police force in action. And in leading magazines this week, you'll see this authentic story. Headline... Fatima's sensational growth sets a record for long cigarettes. Then you'll read the actual reasons smokers give for changing to Fatima. Fatima is different. It's mild and has a wonderful flavor. Fatima's best. These are the words of Miss Pamela Bookman of New York, where Fatima has increased its smokers 132%. Fatima tastes much better than any other long cigarette. It's the best. Says Mr. James S. Winterhalter of Detroit, where Fatima smokers have increased 348%. I like the flavor, and Fatima is mild. It's the best long cigarette. That's the statement of Mrs. Mary C. Werdeman of Los Angeles, where Fatima has increased its smokers 545%. Yes, more and more long cigarette smokers every day agree. A change to Fatima is a change to the best. Enjoy Fatima yourself. Best of long cigarettes. Eight AM Monday, November seventh. Mrs. Renard was released from custody. We questioned her husband, Frank Renard, briefly. He could tell us nothing more than we already knew. Brennan and Wiseman were called back on the case, and together the four of us started over again from the beginning. We had a dead body two pieces of physical evidence to work with, no idea how to fit them together, and no suspects. We went back to the Chavez Road neighborhood where the murdered woman lived and started pushing doorbells. We canvassed the neighborhood for three days and we uncovered one slim lead. He was selling magazines, officer. Went door to door, right up the street here. Young fellow. Could you describe the man for us, please? Nothing to talk about. Pasty face, pimply complexion, blonde hair. 
5.30 p.m. Wednesday, November the 9th, Ben and I met with Brennan and Wiseman in Ed Backstrand's office to compare notes. Together, we had more than a dozen reports of the magazine salesman's presence in the neighborhood just prior to the murder of Mrs. Renard's mother-in-law. The various descriptions of the man which we obtained from the people in the neighborhood tallied closely. About six feet, 170 pounds, pimply complexion, blonde hair, fast talker. About 25 years old. As far as we know, Skibber, he was the only stranger in the neighborhood last Saturday morning. Only one that people remember, anyway. How close did you trace him to the Renard house? You got your list there, Brennan? Yeah. There you are. Thanks. Let's see. Well, he picked up his tracks down on Floresta Street, sold a couple of descriptions there, then he headed up Landers Avenue onto Chavez Road. Yeah. The Renards live at 2280 Chavez Road. That salesman talked to the woman at 2274 Chavez. That's three doors away from the Renards. Uh, when was he seen there? Oh, let me see. Where is that, Brennan? Oh, on the 15-7 sheet, Joe. Didn't have enough room on the report. Oh, yeah. Here it is. Mrs. John Rico, 2274 Chavez. The guy was there about 1145 Saturday morning. Well, that puts him in the running. First time he ever showed in that neighborhood? First time, Skipper. Fresh kid, not a very good salesman. Here's the name of the company he's working for, the Harrison News Distributors. You check with them? Well, they're closed for the night. We'll call them the first thing tomorrow. Good. Here's something else for you. I had a call from Frank Renard this afternoon. What did he have to say? Seems in the excitement just after the murder, Mrs. Renard overlooked a couple of things. What's that? Well, they're missing a yellow table model radio. Radio. In the bedroom where the old lady was killed. Yeah, well, that ties in with a robbery motive, huh? And yeah, they're missing a ring, too. Belonged to Mrs. Renard. Topaz ring. It's supposed to be worth a little money. But she didn't notice it was gone until today. That's right. You got the serial number on the radio? Yeah, right here. Yeah, let's see. Yeah, Ben, here we are. It's Emerson model 511-180,000-277609. A lot of small radios in town. There's only one with that serial number on it. Track it down. <laughs> A complete description of the topaz ring and the serial numbers and description of the yellow table model radio were sent to the pawn shop detail. The information was then placed on the stolen property list and relayed to every pawn shop operator in the city. The next morning, Ben and I interviewed the manager of the Harrison News Distributing Company. There, the suspect had given his name as Sam Bricker. We checked out his home address. It turned out to be a gas station in North Hollywood. We took the suspect's job application blank with a specimen of his handwriting, and then we drove back to the office. Sam Bricker... We were unable to get a make on the name from the record bureau. We checked the cards and every known criminal who was cataloged in the oddity files having a pimply complexion. None of them matched. That night, we got out an APB and a radiogram. The suspect's trail led from one salesman's job to the next. On his last job, he gave his name as Albert Berry. His address is 1430 Palo Alto Drive. That was in the Echo Lake District. Ben and I drove out to check it. 1428. 1430. There it is, Joe. Yeah. At least it's not a gas station, huh? Come on. Tiresome, huh? Yeah, I could stand a change. Yes, what is it? We're looking for an Albert Barry, ma'am. Does he live here? Mr. Barry, I'm sorry. He and his wife moved four days ago. We identified ourselves as police officers and had the landlady, a Mrs. Catherine Hoffman, show us the apartment which Barry and his wife had occupied. It was still vacant. In one of the closets in the apartment, we found a cheap overnight bag. The lock on it was broken and one of the seams had ripped. I forgot about that old bag and Mr. Barry told me I could throw it away. Take a look. I'm in. How long has Barry been married? Do you know, Mrs. Hoffman? No, I don't. But the way they acted, lovey-dovey all the time, I don't think they've been together long. Hey, Joe. Hmm? Look, some kind of an identification tag. Yeah, let me see. Get it up here. It's a tool disc, it looks like, doesn't it? Jameson Larrabee, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You're not after Mr. Barry, are you, officer? Yes, yes. ma'am, we are. 
Did he leave a forwarding address? I wish he did. I'm holding three letters for Mrs. Berry in my apartment right now. May we see them, please? Certainly. Would you step this way, please? My apartment's just across the hall. Yes, ma'am. Would you like a bottle of beer or something? No, ma'am, thanks. Let's see. I thought I put... Yes, here they are. Three of them, Sergeant. From her folks, I think. Mrs. Berry's from Fresno. Oh, that's good. You want to copy down this return address, ma'am? Uh, yeah, I'll go ahead. Okay. That's C.K. Ulrich, U-L-R-I-C-K. Mm. 525 North Lamona, Fresno. Yeah, good. Where you are, Miss Hoffman. By the way, did the Berry say they'd call for their mail? Mrs. Berry did. That's why I'm holding on to it. All right. Just one more question. Do you remember if Mr. and Mrs. Berry had a radio? Yes, they did. A small one. Do you remember what brand it was? No, I don't. It had a yellow case. That's all I remember. <laughs> Before we left, we called Ed Backstrand, and he had an immediate stakeout placed at the apartment house in case the Berries returned to pick up their mail. Ben and I went back to the office and placed a call to the Pittsburgh Police Department. We gave them the description and the number of the tool disc which we'd found in Berry's old suitcase. They said they'd check with the Jameson Larrabee Company in the morning, and then they'd call us back. That night, Ben and I drove to Fresno and checked in at the police station up there. Two officers were assigned to stake out the Ulrich home. We interviewed Mr. Ulrich, who identified himself as Albert Barry's father-in-law. He told us his daughter had married the murder suspect eight months before, and he gave us pictures of Barry taken at the wedding. Ulrich told us that he'd catch a Santa Fe train out of Fresno the next morning. He wanted to be in Los Angeles to take his daughter home when Barry was apprehended. It was almost 2 a.m. when Ben and I left Fresno and started back for Los Angeles. We checked in at the office at 10 minutes past 8 the next morning. At 8.35, the call came through from the Pittsburgh Police Department. What did they say, Joe? It was a tool disc, all right. Jameson Larrabee Company, issued 18 months ago to one of their workers. Can I give a name? Albert Barry. 11 a.m., Monday, December the 5th. One month to the day since the 62-year-old woman had been beaten to death. The pictures of Barry and his wife, which had been taken at their wedding, were printed up in wholesale lots and distributed to all points. Mr. Ulrich, Barry's father-in-law, arrived in town and got himself a hotel room. We waited. There was no report from the stakeout at the apartment house. We checked back in at the office at five minutes to one. I'll get it. Homicide, Friday. This is Mr. Ulrich, Sergeant. I just got a call from my wife in Fresno. I thought you'd want to know. What's that? The wife got a letter from Norma. They're living in South Pasadena, an apartment. You got the address there? Yes, sir. That's what the wife called about. It's 134 Norway Terrace. When was the letter mailed, do you know? Wife said it was postmarked December 3rd, day before yesterday. Get your coat on, Ulrich. We'll be right over. Ben and I picked up Mr. Ulrich at his hotel and drove to the South Pasadena address. Barry and his wife had the apartment on the top floor. Neither of them were at home. The landlord let us in with a pass key. In the bedroom, we found a small yellow radio. We checked the serial numbers. They matched. It was the same radio stolen from the Renard house. In the bedroom closet, we found two suitcases. We checked through them. Mm, nothing in this one, Joe. Oh, here we are. Look at these. What are they, Sergeant? A pair of plastic gun butts. Let's see, Joe. One of them's been chipped, see? Sergeant. Hmm? Somebody coming up the stairs. All right, let's get in the living room. Be quiet. Police, Norma. They want Albert. He killed a woman. Oh, Dad. Dad. 
It's all right, Norma. It'll be all right. Did you know your husband killed a woman, Miss Berry? He just told me last Saturday. We've been running away for a month now. Moving all the time. I wanted to know why. So he told me. He said I was in it as much as you was. And I'm tired of running. <laughs> why did he kill her? Did he tell you that? said it broke in the house. He didn't know anyone was home. The old woman was in the bedroom. She started to cry out. He had a gun. Hit her with it. Where's your husband now? I don't know. He said he'd come home for dinner. About five. About the groceries. What time you got, Ben? Uh, half past three. Um, that ring you're wearing, Miss Barry. Husband give you that? Yes, why? What kind of a stone is that? Topaz. Britt gave it to me. Why? Nothing. We'll wait. Five o'clock came and went. Barry failed to show. 5.30. Ulrich started to get nervous. Six o'clock. 6.30. No sign of Barry. I went to the window and kept an eye on the street below. At 6.45, a light green Nash sedan pulled to a stop in front of the apartment house. A man got out and went into the main floor entrance. Bert, I'll let him in. All right. How long have you had the new car? A couple of days. Bert got it credit. What do you want me to do now? Does he have a key to the apartment here? He lost it. Okay, when he rings, let him in. Just act natural. Ben? Yeah, yeah. You cover me. I'll get the cuffs on him. Right. Hi, Bert. Look out, Joe! All right, drop it, Barry. Okay, Ben. Yeah, he's fast with a gun. Nice looking, isn't he, Sergeant? You'd never think he'd kill anybody. Come on, let's take him in. I love him. I still love him. But you're a cop, you wouldn't understand. That's right, I wouldn't understand. I'm a cop. The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On February 16th, 1947, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 82, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Earlier tonight, you heard the reports of amazing increases in Fatima smokers from New York to Los Angeles. Yes, all over the country, Fatima is doubling and redoubling its sales. And here's reason one. Fatima is the long cigarette that contains an essential ingredient of all the very popular cigarettes, Turkish tobacco. Reason two, Fatima has a much different, much better flavor and aroma than any other long cigarette. Reason three, to millions of smokers, the name Fatima has always stood for the best in cigarette quality. Smoke Fatima, the best of all long cigarettes. <laughs> Albert Ralph Berry was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. His wife, Norma Berry, was found innocent of the charge that she harbored a criminal. She was returned home with her father. 
Barry was executed in the lethal gas chamber at the state penitentiary. You have just heard Dragnet, a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of Acting Chief of Police, W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's program is dedicated to Private Hubert W. Estes of the District of Columbia Metropolitan Police Department, who on the night of May 16, 1947, gave his life so that yours might be more secure. Fatima Cigarettes, best of long cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet, portion transcribed from Los Angeles. Be sure to hear songs by Morton Downey tonight on NBC. Finally this week, it's an experimental dramatic radio anthology series that aired on CBS from January 27, 1956 until September 22, 1957. Subtitle, Radio's Distinguished Series to Man's Imagination. Um, it was one of uh, radios, network radio's last attempts to hold on to and perhaps even recapture some of the demographics that they lost to television in the post-World War II era. This, from May 23, 1956, is the CBS Radio Workshop on the Classic Gas Radio Show. This is the CBS Radio Workshop. a woman and a woman is the blue sometimes she paints like a pair of tight shoes cause blues is a woman and a woman is the blue sad news and bad news but mostly bad news one ain't enough and two is too many Life is rough stuff If you ain't got any Love is a hunger That few of us can feel True love's as rare as a three-dollar bill Love is a heartache That you take and you choose Sometimes you win, boy Sometimes you lose Cause blues is a woman And a woman is the blues CBS Radio A division of the Columbia Broadcasting System And its 217 affiliated stations present the CBS Radio Workshop, radio's distinguished series dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. Cause blues is a woman, and 
Tonight, transcribed, an original story ballad, The Legend of Jimmy Blue Eyes, by Edmund Brophy, with original music by Ray Noble, starring William Conrad as the narrator and Jimmy Dodd as Jimmy Blue Eyes, horn by Manny Klein. In Storyville, where blues were born... There's a legend of a golden horn and a hot-lipped kid, blue-eyed and fair, who tried for a note that wasn't there. So come along Perdido Street where the hot licks tickle dancing feet that shuffle in patent leather shoes, where Jimmy Blue Eyes blew the blues. Now Jimmy Blue Eyes came on earth a child of hunger from his birth. He played all day around the streets of sin, and they spiked his milk with old Tom Jim. He second-lined each funeral band, rushed the can when they made a stand. He held their horns with love and care while his face lit up like a county fair. He followed the tailgate players round when the wagons rolled through back of town. And the only prayers he ever knew were the kind of blue note trumpet blue. Uh, he roamed the streets from sun to moon, his bare feet beat to each tonky tune as it crept through the gin mill's swinging doors. And the sawdust danced on the white tile floors. He stole free lunch from barrel house places and hustled a buck at the fairgrounds races. He talked to dice like a lover can. And he aimed for the life of a sporting man. When Jimmy Blue Eyes turned 16... He joined out Jill, a blues song queen. Jill dressed him like a special prize, this Dixie kid with his soft blue eyes. I eat 20 suits and a Stetson skimmer, a box-back coat and a diamond glimmer, a gold chain draped his fancy vest. Ah, oh, he went first class. He was the best. Now, Jimmy Blue Eyes loved to dally in a card room down along Pig Alley. He could riffle a deck with gambler's ease and clean a cotch game like a breeze. One night, a player met his rays with a silver horn from better days. I guess that's it, boys. I don't see no more money on the table. I'm folding up. Hold on, Jimmy Blue Eyes. I got me some grouch bag dough. Deal out one hand a stud. One hand and I quit. Win or lose. No, no good, Chippy. You blowed plenty of horn on the riverboat for that. I don't want no grouch bag money. Who says you're going to win me? Deal the cards. King. Trey. King bets. Twenty. Queen. Six. King, queen bets. Twenty. 
Ten. Eight. King's high. Twenty again. Jack. Deuce. Possible straight bets. Twenty more. I'll raise you twenty. I'm twenty shy. I'll put up my horn. Oh, that's a pretty beat-up piece, man. She blows plenty sweet. Got a tone like a silver bell. It's a go. What do you got? King high. You? Deuces. Jim showed his wind to his loving Jill in her fancy flat in the morning still. Why, Jimmy, honey, you couldn't call home the cows at sundown with that old thing. Why, she's a singing dream, baby. I'll call her children home like Buddy Bolden used to do. <laughs> I tried her out walking up Rampart Street. You could hear the echo down the riverside. But you never blew horn before. I was top horn in a reform school band. Well, I don't make for playing Tom Anderson's saloon. And you're not filling in alongside King Oliver in a funeral band. That's a cinch. Sweet Jill, I'm sure no fancy Dan. But I'm a dead-bang natural music man. Well, I'll take this battered silver horn and make it talk come Mardi Gras morn. Jimmy, my love, since I was born, I've loved the music of a horn. You learn to make it weep and shout. I'll love you till the stars burn out. Why, well, me and the blues are kid and candy. Or St. Louis and Memphis and Mr. Handy. If you stuck a pin in my heart, it's true. A drop of my blood would come out pure blue. But summers came and winters went, and Jimmy's loving heart was bent as for he hit that master blow. His sweet Jill blew with Hot Lips Joe. Now, Hot Lips Joe, he had no peer. He could shave the head from a glass of beer with a wind from his educated horn, just as sure as you were born, just as sure as you were born. <laughs> The kiss-off gave poor Jim a jolt. He loaded up his blue steel coat and headed for the circus house to croak at double cross and loss. Hot Lips Joe was holding the floor when a cold spit lead type 44. The bullet sang around his head. Jim killed a tourist guy instead. In sheer disgust, a gun he slammed upon the floor, and then he lammed along the streets of jazz mad night while whistles blew to halt his flight. And back at Minnie's circus house, Hot Lips Joe, that hot thief lost, cased a sucker on the floor and smiled and whispered, Nevermore. He did? Put a mirror to his mouth, Hot Lips. Don't need no looking glass. 
Man got no pulse. He's a goner, dead as a mackerel. Jimmy Blue Eye's gonna get himself fitted for a hemp necktie. And the execute man gonna bag his pretty head with a little old black bag. Oh, it's curtains for Jimmy, boy. I say amen to that. Amen. No, never more will Jimmy Blue Eyes catch me with a lead surprise. This hog wild kid is through for fair. A cinch to dance upon the air. Before he ever got a mile, poor Jim was nailed and brought to trial. The old judge burned him with a look and up and hit him with a book. In a cell where Jimmy locked, steel secured, and granite blocked, he played a music rich apart, a gift God gives a contrite heart. Long summers came, long winters went, and all of Jimmy's time was spent to reach a chord. To cut the air and blow that note that wasn't there. The sun went down in Storyville when love went out with Jim and Jill. First war came in Prohibition, and a district went to quick perdition. The diehards died on bathtub gin, but the music lived like... Hidden sin to tickle toes in northern lands with the advent of the Dixie bands. But New Orleans was much alive in the year of 1935. Jim took the long road home at last. The dark and bitter days were past. Now, when Jimmy Blue Eyes hit the bricks, he was master of hot licks. His trumpet clawed and tore the air in search of a note that wasn't there. He played the hottest spots in town. Nearly blew the ceilings down. When his encores all were done, they said, Oh, that man is Gabriel's son. The throw money fell at Jimmy's feet in full-blown gale, the silver sleet. He smiled and played right on until his mind ran back to his heartbeat, Jill. Now you show me an artist, fine or fair, who seeks a note that isn't there. And I'll show you a guy that most men ain't. He's alone, in the clouds, an uncrowned saint. For he scatters joy to his fellow man. Though he might wind up and also ran. To drive past glory, fortune, fame. It's Nirvana, sure. But a heartbreak game. <laughs> Jimmy's heart and soul sent out the soft, sweet tones of his trumpet shout. He blew it hot and low and high. He hit the fringe of heaven's sky. The multiplying strains made naught. He couldn't reach a peak he sought. He blew until the notes were pain, elastic stretches of his brain. Uh, he tried horn gun and mambo pills. 
But they wouldn't bring a trumpet trills. He killed a quarter rye each day. And it didn't help for his high note play. Jimmy, boy, your case is tragic. You'd best resort to mammy magic. She cooks a pot like jungle stew. There's conjure in her devil's brew. Where's this mammy magic live? Where? Tell me where. Two miles north of nowhere. One mile south of someplace. <laughs> Look over your shoulder, man. The old hut in the wood? The old hut in the wood. Now, Mammy Magic was her name. A voodoo witch of power and fame whose spells were famous as the blues from New Orleans to Newport News. Monsieur Jimmy Blue Eyes. All three. You know me, Mammy Magic? You know my name? Few things are secret to one who has a third eye. You are troubled. Speak. Some walls and windows have ears. I read your thoughts. Well? Your desire is beyond my power. You lie, witch. I got the price, woman of darkness. I'm desperate. Do you hear me? Desperate. Level with me. I tell you, Jimmy, on the level, you got to see my boss, the devil. You're asking one thing I can't do. Despite the magic I can brew. I'll have no truck with devils. I'm selling. You are here to buy. What's he asking for price? I don't make out his bills. He keeps them plenty private. Get your devil man. We'll cut up a deal, me and him. So Mammy Magic cast a spell to summon up the king of hell. Dambara. Dambara. came in a flame of smoke and thunder that almost tore the town asunder. He smelled like absinthe and smoke and mud. His eyes were rubies, pigeon blood. He stood erect in a manner bold, and his tail was eighty carat gold. You're a very humble servant, sir. Yeah, I... I Speak I, up, sir. There is no occasion for fear. I pride myself on an understanding heart. Well, uh, here's the situation, Mr... Just call me Red. I'm a very democratic chap. All souls being equal before my eyes. What is your problem, Jimmy Blue Eyes? And what is your heart's desire? Okay, Mr. Red. Here's the setup. I want to... The Red King made a deal with him Had a secret locked inside of Jim And then with the evil art of old Red Turned that silver horn to gold 
Jimmy Blue Eyes walked on feet which never touched upon the street. He wore a broad smile upon his face, for that never, never note was his. That long, elusive note was there, the most immortal anywhere. But when he blew it, come what may, he had an awful price to pay. Old Hot Lips Joe had just come down from a long run in Chicago town. He'd been the world's top trumpet king for 20 years, come one more spring. The jazz folk down in New Orleans dug folding money from their jeans to bet on Jim or Hot Lips Joe to contest for the master blow. <laughs> Put your money where your mouth is. I got a century, says Jimmy Jason. Well, you get it up, man. It's like shooting fish in a rain barrel. Kansas City bets on Joe. And Memphis takes your bet. Chicago goes for hot lips. That boy can really blow up a storm. His money, marbles, chalk, and beans on Jimmy. The pride of New Orleans. Who'll cover five G's with cash, not talk? It's Jimmy Blue Eyes for old New York. Most ever perish up and down bet scads on Jimmy's horn renown. The high and low of fortune's birth came on from ever end of earth. The joint was jammed. And the 88 was under the dukes of a solid gate. The SRO sign hung outside. And there was Hot Lips Joe and his beauty bride, Sweet Jill. The nightingale's song. A dead wrong broad, dead wrong, dead wrong. Playing the puff at a ringside table. Sipping iamber, draped in sable. And Joe took a stage with a master's pride and cut his trumpet open wide. He blew hot notes heard round about. He turned that trumpet inside out. Blew till all the glass was broken. He blew so hot the joint was smoking. His horn turned inside out and curled. The last note traveled round the world. When Joe sat on, the cheering sounds bust tombstones in the burial grounds. His look told Jim with unfeigned joy. Go peddle your papers, little boy. Get a hand talk, Jim. Use that horn to peddle fish. You ain't got a prayer, Blue Eyes. It's like stacking a cellar door dance up against Bill Robbins. Jim took the stage and struck a stance bold for a guy with a Chinaman's chance. <laughs> Let him fry to a whisper tone, like strong men cry. They felt his lonely, bitter years as the horn wept soft metallic tears. Then quick mad laughter with a jeer, go cry in your beer, go cry in your beer. Now, 
switchblade gashes and razor slashes blend with whiskey bottle crashes, culminating in a wail from the foul, deep bowel of a tall wall jail. He ran the scale of man's emotions like changing tides upon the ocean. A harsh note cursed. Another prayed, have mercy, brother, I'm sore afraid. His horn sang smooth and educated and blue and true and dedicated. The music of that Dixie man was greater than the pipes of Pan. The high, soft sigh of a trumpet's cry can tell what magic words can't try. For the horn sings true as it only can, unmatched by nature, bird, or man. Man sings his heart with tongue or pen. Words give and live through time again, but his very heart and soul ring clear when a true horn speaks for all to hear. The crowd sat frozen round a gaff. Jim split the ceiling right in half. He blew the walls down and the doors. He raised the carpets off the floors. Cotton, this disinherited, misbegotten son of a slum and sin and gin blew that scatter outside in. And yet, he seemed like a tired life going home from a weary earth and a heartbreak room to that promised land of a fairer climb out there on the other side of time. Jimmy Blue Eyes hit some bars that blew out half a million stars. And then that never, never note went clear ten jillion miles to heaven's ear. And when it faded, died and broke, that blue-eyed kid Went up and smoke. Now, some rounders claim they're in the know that Jimmy Blue Eyes fries below. But in New Orleans, they'll lay your odds. He's playing trumpet with the gods. For a deacon man was there who preached that before the last note cut and reached the edges of eternity and died. 
Father, forgive me, his trumpet cried. No matter where or when hot music blows, if you're not half-assed dad, he knows. Jim's golden horn, the love of faithless Jill, when blues and we were young in Storyville. Now, Jimmy Blue Eyes came on earth, a child of hunger from his birth. They spiked his milk with old-time gin, and he played all day around the streets of sin. So come along, Perdido Street, where the hot licks tickle dancing feet that shuffle in patent leather shoes. But Jimmy Blue Eyes blew the blues. In Storyville, where jazz was born, there's a legend of the golden horn. And a hot-lipped kid, blue-eyed and fair, who hit that note that wasn't there. Tonight, transcribed from Hollywood, the CBS Radio Workshop has presented The Legend of Jimmy Blue-Eyes, an original story ballad by Edmund Brophy with original music by Ray Noble and starring William Conrad as narrator with trumpet by Manny Klein. Adapted and directed by Sam Pierce. Jimmy Dodd, in the part of Jimmy Blue Eyes, appeared by arrangement with Walt Disney, producer of the full-length motion picture in Technicolor, Song of the South, starring Uncle Remus and the Critters. Song of the South will be released nationally Easter week. Also featured in the cast were Roy Glenn, Georgia Ellis, Sam Edwards, Lou Merrill, Nan Boardman, Jack Moyles, and Tony Barrett. Featured in the all-star band were Tom Peterson on trombone, Matty Matlock on clarinet, Sammy Weiss drums, Nat Farber piano, and Larry Breen bass. The workshop is produced in Hollywood by William Frew.
You have been listening to the Classic Gas Radio Show. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. Until next time, I'll see you on the radio. This has been a Wild Hair Podcast.